0: holidays guys yep it's that season and I am currently in Minneapolis and I was involved in this thing called Christmas quilt it's a collection of stories and poems and music to well you know get yourself into that holiday spirit or something so what I did is I of course recorded the entire thing and assembled a few of my favorite stories and then added some sound design and music because that's what I do Anyway, my partner in crime is named Nyla, which you'll hear at the first story. Just a reminder, this took place in Minneapolis, where they eat this stuff called lutefisk. And if you don't know what that disgusting crap is, consider yourself really lucky. Um, But it's traditional food up here. So with that, I give you 15 minutes of Christmas stories. (laughs)
1: Always wanted a cuckoo clock, a big baroque German job with all kinds of carved foobahs and a little bird that leaps out once an hour and hollers an existential comment about life. So I got one for my best friend who also happens to be my wife and lives in the same house with me. See, the way this deal works is that she usually doesn't really like what I give her for Christmas anyway and I usually end up with it in the end So I figured I might as well start out by giving her something I want in the first place. So when I get it back, I can be truly grateful. She gets the thought, I get the gift. I know it's wicked, but it's realistic and practical. And don't get high-minded about this as if you would never think of doing such a thing. The heck you say, I've been around. I know what I know anyway. I wanted an authentic antique cuckoo clock, but they cost a bundle and this store had new ones overstocked special cheap price hot deal so I got one there were two messages written in small print on the carton which I missed reading made in South Korea was one and some assembly is required was the other the carton produced five plastic bags of miscellaneous parts and an ersatz Bavarian Alpine Goatherd hut marked genuine simulated wood. And to top it off, a plastic deer head that looked like Bambi's mother. I put it all together with no parts left over, thank you, and hung it on the wall. Pulled down the weights, pushed the pendulum, and stepped back. It ticked and talked in a comforting kind of way. Never before had such an enterprise gone quite so well for me. The darn thing actually worked. The hour struck. The little door opened. The little bird did not come out. But from deep in its little hole came a raspy, muffled kook-ah, kook a kook a kook-a. Three kook-ahs. That's all. But the hands of the clock said noon. I peered deep into the innards of the Bavarian alpine goatherd hut of simulated wood. There was the bird. Using an ice pick and a chopstick, I tried to pry the creature forth. It seemed loose. I reset the clock to three. The clock ticked and talked and then clanged. The door was flung open. No bird. Out of the darkness at the back of the hut came, but no oo. not even an. Applying the principle of if it won't move, force it, I resorted to a rubber mallet and a coat hanger, followed by a vigorous shaking. Reset the clock. Hour struck. Door opened. Silence. Close inspection revealed a small corpse with a spring around its neck, lying on its side. Not many people have murdered a cuckoo clock bird, but I had done it. I could see Christmas morning. Here, dear, a cuckoo clock for you. Uh, The bird is dead, and I did. I gave her the clock, and I told her the story, and she laughed. She kept the clock too, dead bird and all for a while. The clock and its bird are long gone from our house now, and Christmas has come and gone many times as well, but the story gets told every year when we gather with friends in December. They laugh, and my wife looks at me and grins her grin, and I grin back. She reminds me that the real cuckoo bird in the deal was not the critter inside the clock. I remember. And me, well, I still don't have a cuckoo clock of my own, but I have kept something. It is the memory of the Christmas message written on the packing carton. It said, some assembly is required to assemble the best that is within you and give it away, and to assemble with those you love to rekindle joy. Cuckoo to you, old bird, wherever you are. And Merry Christmas. Oh,
0: Ludafisk, oh, Ludafisk, how well do I remember? On Christmas Eve, how we receive our big treat of December. It wasn't turkey or fried ham, it wasn't even pickled Spam. No, my mother knew there was no risk in serving buttered lutefisk.
1: I made myself a snowball, as perfect as could be. I thought I'd keep it as a pet and let it sleep with me. I made it some pajamas and a pillow for its head. And then, last night, it ran away. But first, it wet the bed.
0: (laughs) Christmas Day, 1914. My dear sister Janet, it is two in the morning and most of our men are asleep in the dugouts, yet I could not sleep myself before writing to you the wonderful events of Christmas Eve. In truth, what happened seems almost like a fairy tale, and if I hadn't just been through it myself, I would scarce believe it. Just imagine. While you and the family sang Christmas carols before the fire there in London, I did the very same, but with enemy soldiers here on the battlefields of France. As I wrote before, there had been very little serious fighting as of late. The first battles of the war left so many dead on both sides that we've held back until replacements could come from home. So we've mostly stayed in our trenches and waited. But what a terrible waiting it's been knowing that at any moment an artillery shell might land and explode right beside us in the trench, killing or maiming several men, and in the daylight not daring lifting our heads above ground for fear of a sniper's bullet. And the rain. It has fallen almost daily, and of course it collects right in our trenches, where we must bail it out with pots and pans. And with the rain comes mud, a good foot or more deep, It splatters and cakes everything, and constantly sucked at our boots. One new recruit got his feet stuck in it, and then his hands too when he tried to get out, just like that American story of the tar baby. Through all this, we couldn't help feeling curious about the Germans across the way. After all, I mean, they're facing the same dangers we are, slogging in the same muck. But what's more, their first trench is only 50 yards from ours. Between us lay no man's land, bordered on both sides by barbed wire. Yet, we were close enough that sometimes we could hear their voices. Of course, we hated when they killed our friends. But other times we joked about them and almost felt like we had something in common. And now it seems like they felt the same. Just yesterday morning, Christmas Eve day, we had our first good freeze. Cold as we wore, we welcomed it because at least the mud froze solid. Everything was tinged with white frost while a bright sun shone over all. It was perfect Christmas weather. During the day, there was little shelling or rifle fire from either side, and as darkness fell on our Christmas Eve, the shooting stopped entirely. Our first complete silence in months. We hoped it might promise a peaceful holiday, but we couldn't count on it. We'd been told that the Germans might attack and try to catch us off guard. I went to the dugout to rest, and laying in my cot, I must have drifted asleep. And all at once, my friend John was shaking me, awake, saying, come and see, come and see what the Germans are doing. I grabbed my rifle and stumbled out of the trench and stuck my head cautiously above the sandbags. I never, ever hoped to see a stranger and more lovelier sight. Clusters of tiny lights were shining all along the German line, left and right, as far as the eye could see. What is it? I asked in bewilderment. Christmas trees, John said. And so it was. The Germans had placed Christmas trees in front of their trenches, lit by candle or lantern, as like beacons of goodwill. And then we heard their voices rise in song: "St." Halllick nacht." This Carol may not be familiar to us in Britain, but John knew it, and he translated: A "Silent night, holy night." I've never heard one lovelier or more meaningful than in that quiet, clear night. It's dark, softened by the quarter moon. When the song finished, our men in the trenches applauded. Yes, British soldiers applauding Germans. Then one of our own men started singing and we all joined in. The first Noel, the angels did say, In truth, we sounded not nearly as good as the Germans with their fine harmonies, but they responded with enthusiastic applause, all the same. And then they began another. Oh, Tannenbaum, oh, Tannenbaum. And then we replied, Oh, come all ye faithful. But this time they joined in, singing the words in Latin. British and German harmonizing across no man's land. I would have never thought anything could be more amazing, but what, what happens next was more so. English, come over, we heard one of them shout. You no shoot, we no shoot. There in the trenches, we just looked at each other in bewilderment, and one of us shouted jokingly, yeah, yeah, you you come on over. Well, to our astonishment, we saw two figures right side of the trench, climbed over the barbed wire and advanced unprotected across no man's land. And one of them said, send officer to talk. I saw our men lift his rifle to the ready. No doubts, others did the same, but our captain called out, hold your fire. And then he climbed out and met the Germans halfway. We heard them talking. And a few minutes later, the captain came back with a German cigar in his mouth. We've agreed there'll be no shooting before midnight tomorrow, he announced. Sentries are to remain on duty. The rest of you stay alert. Across the way, we could make out groups of two or three men starting to climb out of the trenches and coming towards us. Then some of us were climbing out too, and in minutes, more. There we were in no man's land, over a hundred soldiers and officers of each side, shaking hands with men that we had just been trying to kill hours earlier. Before long, a bonfire was built, and around it we mingled. British khaki, German gray. I must say, the Germans were better dressed, they're fresh uniforms for the holidays. Only a couple of our men knew German, but more Germans knew English. I asked them why this was. Well, because we've worked in England, some of them said. Before this, I was a waiter at the Hotel Cecil. Perhaps I waited on your table. Huh, perhaps you did, I said laughing. He told me he had a girlfriend in London and that the war had interrupted their plans for marriage. Uh, Don't worry, we'll have you beat by Easter, and then you can come back and marry the girl, I said. He laughed at that, and then asked if I would send her a postcard he'd give me later. I promised I would. Another German had been a porter at the Victoria Station. He showed me a picture of his family back in Munich. Oh, His elder sister was so lovely. I told him I would very much like to meet her someday, and he beamed. He said he would like that very much and he gave me his family's address. Even those who could not converse could still exchange gifts. Our cigarettes for their cigars, our tea for their coffee, our corned beef for their sausages, badges and buttons from uniforms exchanged owners and one of our lads walked off with the infamous spiked helmet. I myself traded a jackknife for the leather equipment belt, a fine souvenir to show when I get back home. Newspapers too exchanged changed hands. And again, the Germans howled with laughter at ours. They assured us that France was finished and Russia was nearly beaten too. We told them that was nonsense. And one of them said, well, you believe your newspapers and we'll believe ours. I mean, clearly they were lied to. But yet after meeting these men, I wondered how truthful our newspapers had been. These are not the savage barbarians that we've read so much about. These are men with homes and words and families and hopes and dreams and fears and principles and yes, love of country. In other words, they're men just like us. Why are we led to believe otherwise? As it grew late, a few more songs were traded around the fire. And then all joined in for, I'm not lying to you, Oh, Lang my dear. And then we parted with promises to meet again tomorrow. There was even talk of a football match. I was just starting back into my trenches when an older German guy clutched my arm and said, my God, why can't we all have peace and go home? I told him gently that, well, you must ask your emperor. He looked at me then. Searchingly, she said, perhaps my friend. but also we must ask our hearts. And so dear sister, tell me, has there ever been such a Christmas Eve in all of history? And what does this all mean, this impossible befriending of enemies? For the fighting here, of course, I mean, it means regrettably little. Decent fellows these soldiers may be, but they follow orders and we do the same. Besides, we're here to stop their army and send it home, and never could we shirk that duty. Still, one cannot help imagine what would happen if the spirit shown here were caught by the other nations of the world. Of course, disputes must always arise, but what if our leaders were to offer well wishes in place of warnings, songs in place of slurs, presents in place of reprisals? Would not all war end at once? All nations say they want peace, yet on this Christmas morning, I wonder if we want it quite enough. Your loving brother, Tom.